Good morning. Uh, welcome to CSIS. Uh, we were betting whether it would have torrential rain again, and then we thought we'd get probably 12 people, but I'm glad it's sunny outside. Thank you for coming out. Uh, this panel is on the network futures, uh, 5G software-defined networks, and the internet. So we've got some real experts here today. I'm just going to give you their titles and companies, and then you can um, you can uh, look up their bios online. We have them online. Uh, Chris Boyer, Assistant Vice President of Global Public Policy at AT&T, and probably one of the drivers in this field, although he doesn't like to say that in public. Uh, Travis Russell, Director of Cybersecurity at Oracle, another uh, outstanding expert. And I'm going to mangle your name, so you That's just have fine. to forgive me. Uh, theory, say it for me. Mopile. Thierry Mopile, thank you, yeah. um, who is the uh, EVP and Chief Strategy and Product Management at uh, Altiostar, uh, which is actually a startup in the telecom industry, uh, relatively unique, and he'll tell us a little bit about that. So um, to give you a little background, in uh, 2003, the second project I worked on at CSIS after leaving the government was uh, on... Um, what would the U.S. do when uh, we had to depend on foreign telecom suppliers when we didn't have a company anymore? The answer is we would do nothing. Um, in 2012, the Obama administration reviewed, uh, we don't have any domestic telecom suppliers, what should we do? But when they saw the price tag uh, for what it would take to rebuild uh, a Lucent or something, they decided to go to something else. And then yesterday I was in a room with uh, some uh, senior officials where somebody said, can we build our own Huawei? And that will probably be the only time we'll use the word Huawei here today, <laughs> if, if we're lucky. But, and the answer is no, of course we can't build our own Huawei. Not only can we not build it, because we can't afford it, but we, um, we may not need to, right? Because what the technologies we'll use to connect uh, over networks uh, will be in the future is changing, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, let me start by... Uh, this will be conversational, and we'll just talk. Uh, we'll get time for audience questions, so uh, start thinking of your questions now. Let me start by uh, going down the road, though. Maybe we'll start with you, Chris. Um, what's the telecommunications network going to look like going forward? What do we have to think about? Where's, where are the drivers for change? Well, I, th I think the, um, the key thing, the key trend that's happening in our networks these days is the migration towards software. So. If you look at networks you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, um, we were relying upon Moore's Law and rolling out additional hardware. And through gains in processor speeds and hardware, we were able to keep up with the demand um, that's going on. Um, you know, as you've seen since the emergence of smartphones and all the other, all the other things that are happening on the network, the, the volume of traffic that we're seeing is um, uh, exponentially greater than what it was uh, previously. And so we're getting to the point where um, we're transcending Moore's Law and now we're moving more towards software-defined networks. We're just adding additional hardware appliances is not the way to architect networks. So, so now what's happening in the network is it's becoming software-defined. Um, that trend started happening in the core part of the network. The, um, back in, I don't know the exact timeline, but probably back in 2009, 2010, mm -hmm. 2011, around the same time that cloud computing started to emerge. 
Um, and uh, there were groups formed like ONAP, the Open Network Applications Platform, and other entities that were focusing on the migration of software in the, in the core. And now we're starting to see that same trend happen in the radio access part of the network. So the real, where networks are going these days is away from physical hardware um, to more software-based uh, network architectures, which we think is necessary in order to keep up with the demand that's, that's happening in the marketplace. Great. Um, can people hear uh, Chris? Was his microphone working? Yeah, you can hear him. Okay, good. Sorry, it wasn't sure. All right. I forgot to say because it's at the bottom of my list. We had uh, Stein Lundby of Qualcomm as a speaker, but he had to drop out, unfortunately. So uh, the three of us, the four of us, will just limp along as best we can. Um, can I <laughs> add to that last statement? Yes, please, Travis. I think, you know, we underestimate when we say it's a software-defined network, we <clears throat> underestimate what that really means. You know, we've had technologies in telecom for decades that we've relied on for, you know, the command and control, for example. Um, and, and we have made this huge shift in 5G, not only away from a lot of the, the engineered systems and hardware and towards software, but now we're deploying 5G networks in a cloud data center. We're using all IT technology so it's beyond just the software, it's all of the, the transmission and everything has moved entirely to IT technology. There is no telco technology anymore in 5G. I mean, the, the command and control, or what I call command and control, the signaling, what we're using in 5G now is HTTP and JSON. There is no more SS7. There is no more diameter that we use in 4G. It's HTTP and JSON. That, I think, represents the biggest shift that we have seen in, in telecom technology in, in quite a long time. Great. Uh, Terry, did you want to add anything? Well, I think <coughs> what has been studied uh, is, uh, is definitely true, that there is a major uh, transition. And, and the transition is happening because it's not just adding another number to a G, so from 4, 3G to 4G to 5G. <clears throat> what we see with 5G is a complete uh, paradigm shift in terms of the, the use cases. There are going to be many new ways of using the network. But I think there is a consensus among the industry that uh, if you want to scale 5G, the current model, the current architecture, and the current economics, they just don't work. So this has been a very strong incentive for how can, with innovation, and I think the key word, no matter what, when we are looking at uh, what can we do differently, how can we do it better, is with innovation. So uh, this is what our company has been. We have done this before. There was a transition many years ago from voice to data. And the same team, which is doing AltioStar, in fact, did the technology, developed the technology to support voice and data with the packet core. And again, at that time, we were told it's not possible. It will never work. It was, you know, again, a situation where you could disaggregate, decouple the radio from the other, uh, from the core network. So I think we are exactly at a point of time where uh, innovation does exist. Uh, the technology, uh, which is software-centric, uh, relying on uh, off-the-shelf compute, and that's where the IT model does apply. You know, the Facebook and the Google and the Apple and Netflix, they are not you know, building those big data centers with, for running their operations just because they like compute. It's because this is the most efficient, a more efficient way of doing it. And it's very clear that time is due for the telco world just to embrace 
and leverage this innovation, which is very much uh, software-centric. So that's what I will uh, stay as a first uh, opening uh, comment. So one of the things you hear very frequently in this debate is the U.S. doesn't have a 5G industry, right? And um, I think one of the things I hope you come away with from this panel is that statement is wrong, right? So what does, does the U.S. have a 5G industry? I don't, what, Chris, why don't we start with you since you haven't talked for a while? Travis, if, you, if you're ready, maybe we can give sure. Chris a minute to go. Yeah, I mean, that. absolutely. We, I mean, um, so the, I, I think the best known secret in, in, uh, in telecom is that Oracle Communications is a major supplier in the wireless market space. We've been in 3G and 4G, and we're building out uh, all of the 5G components as well in two capacities. One, as a supplier to all of the, the operators in the, uh, in the industry, but more importantly, there's a shift towards cloud in 5G. And so we're well positioned as a cloud provider to provide 5G as a service through the cloud. And I think that's a, a major shift towards the, the business case in 5G. Um, we have to think, you know, in the past, as, as Chris alluded to, uh, telcos would buy hardware and, and do upgrades to their hardware and the return on their investment could be five, 10 years. Look at SS7. You know, we deployed SS7 in 1984 in the United States, and it's still in use. So great return on investment. Um, I know everybody snickers when, when the president says this, but 6G, we already started work on 6G. We're already defining 6G. So right after 5G comes 6G, then comes 7G, We've accelerated that path so quickly that we have to start thinking about a different approach to supplying the networks. And, and I think that's where this cloud model starts to make sense. We almost put 6G in the title, but then we chickened out. So it went back and forth for a long time. <laughs> I mean, as it relates to 5G and the supply chain, I mean, so AT&T has announced its vendors for the 5G, ran part of the network. And that will be uh, Nokia, Ericsson, and Samsung are the companies that we're using. And I think um, the other US uh, carriers are using a similar, similar groups of uh, suppliers as well. So as it relates to 5G, um, I think a lot of the, uh, the network build that's going to happen is largely going to come from those traditional vendors. But mm -hmm. the real issue to me is, is not, not where are we right now, but where are we going to be in two, three, four, five years from now, right? And, and the concern that has been expressed in the industry is that the current model is not uh, sustainable where we have you know, basically three major suppliers if you rule out uh, certain suppliers that I won't talk about here. Um, and, um, and, and, and if you consider that those particular entities are kind of on a growth trajectory that's gonna crowd out um, some of the existing options. So the concern I think from uh, the AT&T side has been where are we gonna be in three years if the, if the options that are available to us um, are struggling to, and, uh, to compete with um, um, other entities that we all know about. And so how do we shift the dynamic to something that more plays to our strengths where we can out-innovate and come up with additional options in the supply chain? And I think that's where the movement towards software-defined networks and things like the Open Radio Access Network Alliance, the ORAN Alliance, are really important because what they're working on is ways to kind of disrupt um, the existing model and introduce um, additional 
supplier options through software um, that may have not been an option five to 10 years ago. So instead of, I think Jim, to your initial point, how do we build a US version of Huawei? That's probably a little bit of an old school way of thinking about the issue. I think the issue ought to be now, how do we incentivize innovation in software that, run, that runs on top of the network components as a way to really innovate? And that plays to some of the strengths that I think the U.S. has in, in certain areas, like in, in some of the subcomponent level that goes into the different pieces of hardware, whether it's the chipsets or whether it's um, other processors or other elements. If you look at the report that CSIS did back in December, um, if you look at the subcomponent levels, um, the U.S. actually leads in the development of many of those subcomponents. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of what the whole issue has been around the recent uh, entities list decision and other things that have gone on. And so if we can shift it to where we're talking about how do we create um, commoditized hardware with innovation in the software level, leveraging those subcomponents, I think that's an area that we can lead, and that creates new options in the supply chain, and in the long run, um, will diversify uh, the supply chain, which is something I think as a carrier that we're, we're very interested in. Terry, you said something interesting when we were getting ready to come down, and that was that it's, it's hard to be a startup in telecom. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because Chris and Travis used two of the keywords we have to talk about today. One of them is innovation, but let's talk about being a startup. You don't hear about that many telecom startups. Yeah, I mean, and I don't blame, you know, to some extent, some of the, you know, venture capitalists. I live in Silicon Valley, so it's not, there's never been the prime, you know, domain or sector that they will invest in because, uh, first, it's hard. You know, you, we are breaking a model here. We are b breaking something which has been, uh, no, with no change for the last 30 years. I mean, from the, all the Gs, we are still in the mainframe kind of model where everything is very monolithic, the proprietary. Main, mainframe computer. Yeah. yeah, mainframe computer, and you have yeah. the same, the telcos, the technology that is running the mobile network is very similar to what we had in the IT industry back in the 70s and 80s. So now we have an opportunity to break the model, but breaking the model means that you have to open. You have to open the architecture. You have to open the interfaces. They have to be standard open interfaces, and they have to be made mandatory. And this is where there is some important initiatives happening, like Oran in the US, where the operators with the industry will have to drive the definition of what does open architecture mean. So only an open network is going to allow the innovation to come in. And if you have a platform, so now the network is becoming a platform, and it's given incentive for investors to put money, so there will be other innovation coming. So the whole purpose here is to open this domain so there will be more innovation. And I think for the US, talking about the US industry, there is a lot of innovation uh, happening in the, in the US, either through very well-established companies, I mean, Qualcomm, Intel, Oracle, and, and others, but there are also a lot of startups. So it's hard because I even if you develop a software-centric, uh, uh, technology like we, we have done. It took us six years, not just to develop, but also to reach to a point where we can deliver something at, something at parity in terms of functionality and features with the existing vendors. But the idea for us was not to create another Ericsson or another Nokia. And in fact, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, unfortunate that in this market today there's no US vendor that can provide an end-to-end -end solution. So now we say, Maybe it's not needed because if you have an open market, then the operators will have the choice, if it's based on real standard-based interfaces, to pick the best of breed for each element of the network. And that's where you are going to create new economics. And this is where we believe this 
open architecture is going to drive an open market where many companies will be able to participate in the different subdomains. So you will have a radio domain, you will have a software domain, you will have the, the NFVI, which is you know, where we virtualize. So what we have done is to virtualize the software, as it was mentioned, and now you can run most of your application in the, in the, in the cloud. And if you take the example of what we are doing, uh, there's one operator, it's a new operator, it's a new entrant in Japan. And this company, Rakuten, is coming from the IT world. It's an e-commerce company who has decided to become a mobile network operator. Why? Because they believe for their business, being in e-commerce, it's very important to have direct connectivity with their end users, with their consumers, but also they want to push services much faster. So this is also a question of speed. How can I deploy, not just at a much lower cost, but much faster services? The point I'm making about Rakuten is that if you look at the number of companies who are building the network in Japan, which is, a, again, a brand new network, first time, you have Altiostar, which we are providing the software, which is a kind of a horizontal layer. You have uh, uh, Red Hat, who is now part of IBM who is providing all the stack running on Cisco infrastructure. So I'm just mentioning already three major US companies mm -hmm. who are building a network, a new network in Japan. So that's a good example of how we can do things differently. We're going to try and get Rakuten here in the fall. Uh, the, we've been talking with some of the Japanese agencies, and they would like Rakuten to come here and tell their story, because it's a different telecom story than the one you hear. And, um, We'll see if we can get them. They're, they're about to go public? Is that where they went public? Oh, they, are, they are public and they, they are obviously uh, uh, very uh, active in, uh, in Japan. I think they are also uh, looking outside of Japan in, to develop their, their business. Uh, but this is again, it was a very visionary <coughs> entrepreneur who saw the opportunity that with innovation, so when they were aware that there will be there is innovation. They, they took a long time, I can tell you, before they decided to deploy. They took the decision in July. Uh, last year, they are already, we have just done the soft launch last week. So they just built a network from scratch in one year, which is, is never heard of. It's only because of this new technology approach. But what is very interesting is that they will disrupt. I mean, they are going to disrupt the, the Japanese market. I mean, if you look at uh, what we call the average revenue per user, I mean, the, the, one of the most expensive markets is Japan. Then the US is not far behind. And then you have countries like Germany. And I can tell you what's happening in Japan will happen in other uh, countries uh, as well. Because this, if you are able to have an entrepreneur with access to capital and access to innovation, they, they see the opportunity. So we've used the word innovation a couple times, which uh, is, of course, one of the popular words to use in Washington. But I don't know, Travis, Chris, do you want to start talking about this? Where does innovation occur in the telecom industry? What does it look like now? And we'll, we'll go down the line. So AT&T is driving this, and maybe you can tell us a little bit why they want to see innovation, what, what the drivers are for you. Well, I mean, the, the biggest driver from a business perspective is matching, uh, is meeting the scale challenges that we're going to have in the future, right? So if you look at, think about 5G, I mean, we've talked before, what is it, I don't know what the latest figures are, but the numbers of billions of devices that are going to be connected to the network in the future and the traffic demands, I think we're now somewhere around, 
I don't know what the exact number is. I know it's over 250 petabytes of data in a given day. So it's a massive volume of traffic that's coming over the network. So um, you have to match that, um, that level of demand. And that's what's driving a lot of the movement towards software. And I think the other challenge that we see that's driving the need for innovation is um, with 5G, a lot of the, um, the it's going to be a different type of an architecture where you're going to have particular use cases that are rolled out in different areas. You're going to have to shift that capacity or have the ability to move the capacity around uh, to match the demand. It's not going to be as, you know, today we think about smartphones and we think about, you know, those types of devices, but in the future we're going to have things like smart cities and connected cars and, you know, healthcare IT and all sorts of different applications that are going on that are going to be, that are going to require, you know, very low latency uh, connections in order to provide service. And so it won't be as static in terms of the rollout. You'll have to be able to move the, move the uh, capacity around to match the demand, to meet the latency challenges. And so the movement towards software is what becomes really important for us to be able to meet that. So that's the business driver. Um, I also think on the policy front, I mean, we obviously um, um, want to ensure that um, there's a very robust competitive supply chain, and I think there's a need for innovation in that space as well um, in the long run. You know, but the business driver is really is managing the cost and the scaling of the network to meet the challenges that we're going to see as we roll out these new technologies. I'm really bad at predicting this stuff because I know like about a, 10 years ago I was talking from someone from AT&T and you know we were saying you were having a hard time then keeping up with the demand for traffic because of <laughs> streaming services and I thought no, nobody's ever going to want to watch television on a little screen like this oh, oh well <laughs> so the, the and if that was bad if streaming services and the app economy were were bad in terms of the demands it puts on networks what we're going to see with the interconnected devices that are coming and you can put all your buzzwords in here at once 5G internet of things cloud I, we're on the verge of a gigantic explosion in connectivity and matching that, keeping up with it is going to be hard and that's part of why we're talking today is that you might need different technologies. I don't know, Travis, do you want to jump in on that one? Yeah, I mean, we certainly saw an example of that when we rolled out 4G. I mean, nobody could have predicted, you know, the, the evolution of smartphones and, and the direction that, that they took and then, of course, all of the apps that were born because we had smartphones uh, able to support them. You know, when I started in this business back in 1977, I remember my first, we called them transportable computers back then, because <laughs> it, it was the size of a suitcase and it had a really big handle so you could drag it behind you. And it had a, a telephone port on the back to where I could plug in a telephone cord and a little handset on the side, and that was converged voice and data. And so we've been driving as an industry towards this converged voice and data, but we keep trying to apply old legacy technologies to go make that happen. We introduced IP as a transport in 2000, and that was a significant enabler for especially the wireless industry because it opened up the door for us now to start using some of the IT capabilities to address this data and voice convergence. And, and I think with 5G, we're closing that loop now. We're, we're finally there. And so I think we're going to see, and, and we're already seeing, a, a tremendous amount of innovation coming from smaller startup companies that are going to be loading on the apps that, that we're going to see not only on the smartphones, but also when you start looking at all of the devices that we use in our daily lives. You know, literally everything becomes connected at that point, and everything starts talking to everything. And I think that's, 
not too far off. I think the other thing that we don't, don't lose sight of is it's not just about the capacity, it's also the latency is really a huge part of the 5G yeah. rollout because mm. um, it used to be, you know, back in like with 4G LTE and 3G and the previous technologies, the applications kind of resided in the internet, right? You, you would build a network and you would go through the, the network that a company like an AT&T or, or my competitors provide and the application and the processing would be done at the far end of the network up in the cloud or in the internet, right, effectively. Um, and so with, with 5G, you know, the core and the, and the edge part of the network are getting more blurred and we're shifting a lot of the processing and the content closer to the user to cut down on the latency. And that, that is one of the reasons why as we roll out 5G, we talk about things like small cells and kind of the different, different parts of the rollout. You have to have that higher, you have to have the spectrum and the higher bandwidth to enable those services, but you also have to move that processing functionality, that core functionality closer to the user so that we can cut down on the latency. And that's what enables um, some of the technologies like we talk about uh, autonomous vehicles, right? They're gonna, have, they're gonna be a highly latency dependent. So it's not necessarily that they're gonna drive a huge amount of volume of traffic on the network, although there will be volume challenges, but it's the need for those, those um, those devices to be able to respond really quickly to make smart decisions as they're, you know, as you're driving down the road or using that particular vehicle. So I think the latency aspect of it is something that's also a challenge. And in a cloud-like environment, you can move those resources around and, and meet those challenges much more efficiently than you can in the old way of doing networks where you're trying to build out physical capacity. So to get a little financial for a minute, this means that the capacity spend at some of the big telcos is going to change? Uh, I can't speculate on that, okay. so I'm not the financial I know it's too hard. And I'm not going to talk <laughs> about Edge now because it's further down on my list of but, questions. But I think what I, I can comment on this. So today's a problem when you design a mobile network. You have to design it at peak, so it means that you have to put a lot of hardware yeah. at the site, irrespective of if there is traffic or not. And that's part of the issue with the current architecture. So when we move forward, now the capacity is going to be in the network. And because of the use case, because different use cases that it was mentioned, where it's either just broadband versus doing video versus doing you know, mission critical with very low latency, the, the network resources that needs to be activated are very different. And there are three dimensions. You have capacity, you have the number of users or devices or endpoints that you are trying to reach. And then the third dimension, which is becoming extremely important here, is what we call the intelligence. So the network has to be able dynamically based on the request. So you have a user request and suddenly the network has just to activate what is required for this particular use case. And that's a paradigm shift. This today is not possible. And that's where the true 5G will deliver its potential and its value. Not the current initial deployment, but when we go with a 5G core, then you can really dynamically scaling up, and it's auto-scaling up, and it's auto-scaling down the network. That's where you use the investment, the capacity, in a very different way. So that's probably one of the paradigm shift. Yeah, if you think about it, what, what I was hoping, fishing for, for an answer, and what we're getting is that people have to build for peak demand, right? And that means that there's a lot of time there's excess capacity that's not being used. And the movements we're talking about means you will be able to shift resources around. You won't have to build for peak demand all the time. You can have the ability to meet peak demand by moving resources that previously you had to keep in another area. And I will add just uh, to be comment, it's even better than that, that now that you are using off-the-shelf compute, and this compute asset is in the network, can be still some at the site, can be on the edge, so obviously the edge 
cloud is becoming very important, or it's more, more centralized, data center. This compute resource now can be used when it's needed for managing the traffic, but it's also used for other purposes. So that's something which also, again, today is not possible, that you can maximize the use of your asset in a very different way. So the economics, that's the way the economics of the total network will look very differently. It's not just, you know, the hardware is cheaper or the software is cheaper. The way you, you, you run your, your operation is very, very different. And this all intelligence, which is a third leg, where now you use machine learning, AI, to automate, because now you can have a closed loop. You can have a closed loop within your own network from the site all the way to the, to the core. And that's something which I believe Rakuten, for example, they believe that they are going to have major savings on the CapEx, no doubt, very significant savings. But the, most of the savings that they believe they will be able to generate are on the OPEX, on the operations. And that's something which is absolutely critical, I would say, for all operators. They need to move very quickly to a, an architecture which is not just going to deliver more, you know, faster and more bytes and bits, but to have a much different model in the way you can operate, manage, and push services in your network. So and that's a great example of why, you know, where that data technology has become such a big advantage. Because in data, you know, data centers have been doing orchestration for years. Um, and we've been trying to force fit orchestration into the telecom through things like network function virtualization, for example. And it became so complex that it just became unusable. And so as we start more and more to start embracing more of this IT technology, it, it helps us get to where we need to get a lot faster. And orchestration is a great example of cloud technology that, that enables that. So if I say uh, white box computing, this is a test for the audience. Hold up your hand if you know what white box computing is. There's no grade and we won't check. We've only got one, that's amazing. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about white box telecom. Do, when do you want to talk about that? I don't know, Chris or Travis or Terry. What is white box telecom? White box is a generic computer. It's not a branded thing, it's not proprietary, it's just somebody. So when you see a lot of the big data centers at places like uh, Google or others run, they're building their own computer. It's cheap and it's not what you have at home, but it's a white box. And it does what's, what's white box telecom? Well, so I mean, it takes a lot of different, um, a lot of different forms. One, one of the things that, that we look at as a cloud provider, if, if we want to um, go to, say, an AT&T or, or Verizon, um, they need to, to support a virtual network for IoT, for example. Um, it's expensive to do that. You've got resources you've got to dedicate. Um, and in a lot of cases, it may not make sense for an operator to go build this virtual network just for IoT. Uh, so if we can go in then and offer that as a, a network slice, as a 5G service for just IoT, and not put a brand on it, we white label it and allow them to put their own brand on it. That's one example of of uh, white label telecom. I think, you know, what has been important for us, because, you know, we developed the software, it was, beside having the, the vision and to develop this very complex uh, software to, to, to run a mobile network was, is there hardware available so we can run our software at the expected performance? And even for us, if it took so much time to be able to, to, to come to this point, it was true that before, the hardware was not available. So even if what was running in the IT data centers, 
the level of performance that is required for a mobile network is much more demanding. So the good news that what has happened that now this the same model that you had with PCs when you started to disaggregate, you know, the, the hardware, the microprocessor coming from Intel to the OS and then the application and you know anyone else could then assemble and be in the computer in the PC business. So here you have the same. So you have uh, companies who are able to come up with Intel, so US technology, Intel 86 servers that have reached now a performance level and a cost level that allows the software to run on it. And that's something that we are leveraging now. So in the data center, whatever it's an edge or in the centralized data center, all our software is running on off-the-shelf. So off-the-shelf means that it's in fact compute hardware that you can buy on the open market. Mm. And you will have the choice as an operator to say, I'm going to get the best of breed, but also at the best uh, possible uh, price point. And, and that's now those two things together, the commercial off-the-shelf hardware with a sophisticated so software can be met and provide this new way of delivering uh, the solution. That's a complex one, so I want to come back to it because I think we're on a similar path that we've seen with uh, computing uh, in telecom. But before we do that, let me ask one that comes up a lot in DC, which is where does 5G innovation occur? Where, who's doing the innovations in 5G? Where do you look when you, you're clearly doing it? But when you think of it, what are, is it India? Is it China? Is it the US? Where does 5G no, innovation occur? Is it Europe? Yeah. Sorry, I forgot them. <laughs> it's in the US. I mean, this is again, a, I think we are misleading uh, ourselves and a lot of, uh, of people by saying that, you know, US is, is behind or 5G is not happening here. Most of the innovation, so even if you take what we are doing, our partners are Qualcomm and Intel. They are providing us the core technology that we need for our software. Then you have, I mentioned what we are doing in Japan with Cisco. We are leveraging OpenStack from Red Hat. This is all, you know, hundreds of millions of investment of many years that brings this innovation. So the, the missing link in the US supply chain is how do we pro create an end-to-end -end solution? So we don't have just a few companies who participate upstream, and then suddenly there's nothing in the middle, and then we have the Apple of the world and the Google who are doing the downstream and the apps. The missing link is what we are fixing here. We need, this country needs, in order to participate, not just in this market, but outside, overseas, the opponent is overseas, even more importantly, is to have this US supply chain, which is an ecosystem of companies who are bringing their innovation in their domain of expertise, and by putting this together, you create something which is much more attractive than the traditional model. So, there is going to be innovation, and there is already innovation in the US, I think if we move, as I said before, to this concept of platform, platform means people will invest. If you have a platform, it just creates incentive for investors and innovators to participate. And this is going to be global. So innovation will come not just here, but also especially with IoT. If every vertical, if every industry is going to be connected and run you know, applications over a mobile network, this will stimulate uh, innovators, entrepreneurs say, I'm going to write an application that is going to run on this network because I'm confident that this is going to be good business and I will have a decent return investment. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I, I don't think that 
we can look at 5G as a geographic thing. Like I, th I think it's really about, it's global. I mean, it, the innovation's gonna happen globally because a lot of the value, I mean, on the network operator side, you know, we're obviously investing significantly in infrastructure to build out 5G, and that's gonna be continuing to happen over a number of years, and I think all of our competitors are gonna be doing the same thing, so there's gonna be, a, there's, there's that whole side of it, and so certainly AT&T views itself as kind of innovating in that space as well, but a lot of the value proposition for 5G is gonna be on the applications that right on top of the infrastructure, and those different use cases, and the devices that are connected to that and that can be developed anywhere if you think about code you know the, you know people writing software these days they don't write code and you know we don't suddenly say well you're writing it in the US like the, this is developed worldwide and a lot of it's going to move towards open source over time so um, so I think that the reality of it is innovations could happen globally but as a policy guy I would say the key issue is this idea that there's no innovation happening in the US I think it's just wrong I mean I think that's not that's not accurate I think there are things happening in the US um, you know AT&T itself you know we've been uh, we currently chair the O-RAN Alliance We've been pushing that very hard. We helped push the ONAP Alliance when the same things were happening in the core part of the network and have been very active in trying to drive innovation in the space. So this idea that there's not innovation happening in the U.S. and it's all happening over in particular countries, um, I just think is, is, is not accurate at the end of the day. Um, it may not be as easy to point to because it's not like there's one big company you can point to and say that's where the innovation's happening. It's more of a long tail with multiple entities and companies like like um, the ones we're talking about today. And um, it's a little bit more of a distributed chain, down, but it's but that innovation is happening here. And I think actually that's a better model in the long run than having a single entity that becomes kind of the, you know, kind of monolithic integrated provider at the end of the day. I always look at, if you go back and look at just the, the 5G specifications, it's all Western technology. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't see foreign technology in the specifications. HTTP, you know, TCP IP, JSON, all of those are Western technologies that were innovated in, in Western countries, if not the U.S. directly. And so uh, I agree. I think it's, I think, you know, it's misleading to say that, you know, we're behind in 5G. Sometimes I think there's a, um, there's a tendency to look at 5G announcements. So we've got to understand what is a 5G deployment today? What does that mean? It's not true 5G. 5G specifications haven't been completed yet. I know because I'm in 3GPP as well. And we're behind, by the way. So the specifications for how that core network is supposed to operate, you know, we were supposed to have that specification done in December. Now it's pushed off to, to March or April or June and we're pulling content out of the release so that we can make that date. So how can you have a true standalone 5G network if the specifications haven't been defined yet? So what you're seeing are a lot of deployments that are either 5G radio on a 4G core, which is one of the implementation models that we defined in 3GPP, or you see a 5G proprietary deployment that will not interoperate with 5G standard, and, and I think that really is, is what you see today. Yeah, if, if I might, Jim, and just, you know, even though there is, you know, putting my policy hat on, even though there is innovation happening today in the U.S., it's also very important that as, as policymakers are thinking about these issues that we put in place the right foundation to incentivize that in the long term. Like the challenge to me is if you look at the problem and say, you know, where's the supply chain going to be in several years? Um, we have to, you, you lay the foundation now so that those, the, the right investments can go into those types of technologies and those companies today so they can see the market opportunity and the business opportunity to continue to invest and thrive in that marketplace. The worst thing that can happen is if we continue on the current trajectory and it looks like the market is going to be kind of locked down by 
um, by certain suppliers where, the, where it will forego the business opportunity for someone else coming into the space. That's why um, I think you were speaking earlier about, uh, about it with ORAN, they're, they're trying to standardize the interfaces so that we can move towards a more modular type of design where you can use antennas from one entities and baseband units from other entities and they, they can all interoperate with one another. That creates an environment where there's, a, there's an opportunity for other players in the ecosystem. If you can de decouple the software from yeah. the hardware, you know, that decoupling creates an opportunity yeah. for software companies. And so, it, but if we, if, but we need to have the right policy framework in place to support that kind of interoperability and, and diversity in the supply chain and the governments that are thinking about this issue need to make those decisions today so that those companies continue to invest and thrive in the future and not wait three years from now when the problem's only gonna be um, worse than it is today. Yeah, so I'd like to add, so good news, yeah, good news, innovation. We have a lot of innovation in this country and there's going to be more innovation happening globally. The problem today, when you go to the implementation, this is control innovation. So there's only a few vendors who are controlling the pace of this innovation and that's a problem. We need to break the model. We need to open the architecture to open the market. That's the way innovation is going to be unleashed and accelerated. It's a question of velocity, acceleration. And today, those conditions are not there. I hope it will happen. We are confident that Oran, the community of oper operators, will, will drive this. In, you know, for a startup like us, we are looking not just disaggregating the hardware and the software, which we have done from a technology point of view. We are disaggregating the procurement. Because today, every operator is still looking at this monolithic network and procure the whole network, all the elements from the same vendor. So as long as the procurement is going to issue RFP, RFK, RFI, RFQs with a traditional model, the innovation will be not unleashed. It will be behind something. So that's the breakthrough. The breakthrough that you have to open the market so you can really have new choices, but also accelerating the pace of innovation and delivering the benefits of this approach. Travis, you've seen this movie a couple times. Do you want to tell us what openness means here? I mean, you've seen it with uh, the PCs, you've seen it with the internets, and particularly openness and maybe the relation to standards since you're in 3GPP. Yeah, you know, I, I, always, I, I, get a, I read a lot of, of you know, drafts for bills and, and other things that are circulating now in 5G, and I hear that term quite a bit. And, you know, if I put on my, my engineer hat, the reason why we do standards is so that we can all interoperate and standards are open today. I mean, that's why you do standards. Um, and we all collectively sit in a room and we vote on things that we believe are, are important for the specification so that we can all together build to that specification. That's open, right? Um, and so I, I, I always have to scratch my head a little bit when we say open and standards in the same context because standards are open today. Uh, it's where we don't have standards where we have an issue. And so, uh, you know, any place where you're starting off with a, a proprietary technology to go address something like 5G and it doesn't adhere to the standards, you don't have that openness, you won't have that interoperability. And we see that playing out now. You, you've, you've seen some operators in the UK, for example, or in, uh, in Europe pushing back saying, I, I can't select some other supplier because I'm, I'm locked into this technology or this particular supplier 
and it won't work with anybody else. It's because they chose something that was not standards compliant. That's a really interesting. Yeah, point. I mean, to be fair, Chris, uh, <coughs> I know, uh, and we have to drive this industry with uh, standards, which have to be fully specced, which means the entire stack. The problem is that if you have a standard, and then you, la you leave 10% of this, not because that's why Oran is stepping in, because unfortunately in the 3GPP <coughs> specification, there's still some room for vendors to do their own implementation. So then what does it mean that if I'm building a mobile network from the antennas, the radio, the baseband, I can have this implementation being standard-based, but I will do and make sure that there is enough proprietary technology so no one else can in fact connect those different elements except from the same vendor. And that's a problem today if you build a network in any, any country. You have to build a region by with vendor A, another one with vendor B, and vendor C. That's not open. So I think we understand the problem. Now it's, it's really to be at a point where we know that the technology is now available, and to enforce and to make sure that through the standardization and what Oran is doing, when you know, AT&T and Verizon will come into the market and say, if you want to build, to provide me with a network, this network has to be fully standardized with open interfaces. If it's not, you cannot participate. Yeah, that, that's, that's absolutely right. I mean, that's been our experience as well. Like when we build out networks, it is done on a regionalized basis where we, we use different vendors. We obviously use multiple vendors for our builds for diversity purposes, but at the end of the day, uh, because of, it, and I think the vendors would all say, and they're not here on the panel, so I don't want to speak for them, but I think they would all say that they are fully standards compliant. They will say that they're all 5G compliant or 3GPP compliant, right? But the challenge has always been, how do you get the, 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 the the level of performance that the networks require, um, and generally speaking, that's required rollouts to be kind of regionally based, where you use one vendor for a particular region, another one for another region. And so um, with ORAN, if we can move to this modulized design where, where we can pick a, a um, you know, an antenna, like we were talking earlier, some of the technical subcomponents, the antennas and baseband units and the software from different suppliers, we can get best of breed for all those components and have a much more higher performing network. Um, and it also, in theory, I think, lowers the barrier to entry because if you're a new player in the space, you don't have to think about how do I build a fully integrated you know, device? Like how do I build a, a, you know, an E-Node B or a G-Node B type of device, like a cell site, and build it soup to nuts where I have to provide the antenna capability, I've got to provide the baseband units, I've got to provide the software wrapping around that, and it's all going to be kind of done by one, one company. I think breaking that model is, what, is what's being discussed right now is how do we facilitate that? And I think the U.S. carriers are, we're all, they're all, they're all members of ORAN. They're all kind of pushing that, uh, pushing in that direction. What we really need to happen is that the, the challenge we have in our industry is the U.S. by itself doesn't have the scale as, as big as the U.S. is. Um, we need to have, there needs to be a global opportunity there. And that's why I think you're seeing some of the push that's happening right now in, in, the, Euro, in the EU and other parts of the world uh, to embrace this type of architecture as well so that that, so that becomes kind of the de facto standard across the industry and not just kind of isolated to one particular region. Yeah, I think this balance between uh, openness and proprietary systems and the resulting lock-in explains a lot of what you see happening in places mm -hmm. like the Netherlands and other European countries. So it right. will be a crucial point on how we, how we move forward in telecom and who ends up uh, owning the networks. Um, it's come up a couple times. So what policies would best support this approach? What are the policies the U.S. should take and should work with to get with its allies to move us to 
a more open 5G, uh, a more flexible 5G network. To, Chris, do you want to start on that one? Since yeah, I mean, well, I mean, the two things that, that we've been really focusing on is this idea of vendor diversity, number one. So, so even if you, you know, being a, a realist, I think there are, you know, it's, it's not like um, whatever, whatever companies that are of concern, I'm not going to name names, um, you know, uh, it's not realistic to expect that they're going to be foreclosed from the market around the world. So um, assuming that is the outcome, then um, there needs to be a diverse set of suppliers. So countries need to put in place policies that ensure that um, they're not sole sourcing their networks to one particular entity. I think that would, that would, that would only kick the can down the road and lead to uh, just exacerbate the problem in two to three years as the market conditions continue to go down a certain path. Um, so vendor diversity is a key thing. We've seen that happen in some countries, like I know in Germany, um, um, BSI, or is it BISB? I think BNETSA. BSI, yeah, they put out a, they put out a set of principles, principles earlier in the year yeah. um, for their network operators that basically talked about vendor the, diversity. Uh, as Bundes a, network agency. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, so they put out a, uh, vendor diversity is part of the requirements that they have now for dealing with security for for network operators, so that's, that's a positive development. The other thing that was not in the, the German rule um, was the interoperability issues. So I think the idea that as you pick vendors, making sure that they're diverse and that they're, they're embracing these kind of open standards and interoperability, those are two ways to at least ensure that um, over time the, the markets are opened and there's an opportunity there for innovation. Yeah, if you haven't looked at the BNETZA, B-N-E-T-Z-A, Principles. It's worth taking a look, and of course, they link to the Prague principles on 5G. So yeah, the Prague principles also had the vendor yeah. diversity and interoperability as part of that as well. So there is a, some action going on on how to reshape policies. I mean, Travis, did you want to jump in on the? Well, I was going to mention the Prague proposals because you know I, I was very encouraged to see that. It's the first time I think that we've seen 32 countries all get together and agree on the same principles around procurement and things that uh, operators should be looking at before they make those uh, investment decisions. But you know, here at home, um, I think we have to look at some of the barriers for innovation today. And, and, and I think you mentioned one of them is it's expensive for a startup. It's difficult for a startup. We gotta make that easier, right? And, and we also need to help remove some of the barriers. Uh, often we talk about standards participation. The biggest barrier to standard participation is travel cost because uh, for example, it, you know, we always say 3GPP, but 3GPP is only one of about a dozen different standards bodies that are defining the specifications for 5G. 3GPP we meet, you know, just the SA3 meets every month in some other country someplace. Uh, and then you've got prep that you have to do before that meeting, which takes usually two to three weeks. If you're also participating in the, in the architecture group, SA2, then you know, that also meets once a month. So you're, you've got dedicated headcount that you can't now use for development. They're dedicated to supporting the standards process. That gets really, really expensive and, and prohibitive. And it's not just the headcount cost, but it's the travel cost. So we gotta figure out how can we help uh, people that you know, uh, could and, and contribute into that standards process. How do we remove some of those barriers? Uh, yeah, I totally agree with Travis on that one. That's an important issue as well. It's like, how do we create the right incentives for increased standards participation is an, another issue that's important as well. Terry, what do you see for the policy? What would you want to see in terms of policy changes for what you do? Look, you know, so we are, we are a bunch of entrepreneurs. We uh, are taking uh, a lot of money from uh, investors. That's a lot of risk. 
but we believe this is the right thing to do and we believe there will be a positive outcome. So what we uh, want is to make sure that there is an environment around us that is going to you know, favor this type of uh, entrepreneurship, that we are going to put money at work for you know, de delivering this innovation. So that's, I would say, number one. I think, as the point has been mentioned, you know, how do we make sure there will be more investment in software? Because this particular domain, again, is the first time that we are really breaking into. Uh, you know, it took, you know, just for you to understand the scale, even as for a startup, we have already spent $230 million over six years. We have raised another 100. So we're going to spend globally $300 million. So $300 million is a lot of money that you compare with other companies who are spending just for 5G billions, five to seven billion dollars, at least more than one billion per, on average per year. So that's a level of disruption. The disruption is happening already at the R&D spent. So we are disrupting the industry by, with $300 million, disrupting an industry that is spending billions of dollars. So we need an environment where we could make this capital available. And the good news about the US is that there is a lot of capital. We're just looking for opportunities. Then obviously, you know, 5G, 4, this is part of the infrastructure of every economy. You are not going to build your next generation economy without having a strong 5G infrastructure. Infrastructure means it is infrastructure. It's like, you know, roads and railways and electricity. So this is, how can you imagine that one day, you know, there will be no connectivity? And it's going to be even you know, more dramatic when all industries, every business, and every you know, public entity, you know, uh, not just governments, uh, agency, will also be connected. Everything will be through a mobile uh, network. So it's absolutely critical that the US administration, like every country is doing, is to accelerate the adoption of, of, broad, of connectivity, of broadband. And so there are different ways of doing this. I'm sure you have more experts than I am, but I think the support, supporting the industry by creating the right environment and making sure that for some projects there is access, US technology is available, it is available. So we need to have innovation coming from outside. So having companies coming from outside of the US to participate in the US market is mandatory. But we want to make sure that the US technology is also one of the options, one of the choices. And that's where I think the, the policymakers have to be able to create this environment. So we have as much as possible a level playing field. And you still have to compete. You have to show that you have the best solution. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Jim, I I know we're focusing more on supply chain, but obviously it would be remiss in a 5G discussion to not talk about other things that are really important to 5G, which is obviously the spectrum issues and right. kind of yeah. cell siting concerns. So if you're talking about 5G deployment and how do you expedite that and how does that play into the overall supply chain opportunity, you know, clearly, um, you know, the FCC is going to auction off millimeter wave spectrum later this year. That's a critical issue. The mid-band spectrum is also extremely important as well as kind of the pace of deployment is, you know, the cell siting issues and getting uh, the rollout done. Are I thought we were doing okay on spectrum allocation here. 
Yeah, I mean, we're making progress, but there's always going to be a need for more spectrum. That's sure. More, more is always better. It's always an issue, <laughs> especially in the mid-band space. And I think the other, the other thing I think, uh, I think you make a really good point about, well, one thing government can do is through the, you know, government has a lot of, they have the power of the purse, right? They have a big procurement side, so they can use some of that as well to create the right incentive structure when they think about deploying 5G. Um, how can they do that in, the, in a more innovative way that can help uh, play into some of these issues as well? Yeah, the NIMBY issue on uh, cell siting is also puzzling because the yeah. 5G boxes are actually smaller than the current <laughs> ones, so it's like... Yeah, but there's more of them. There's more of them, but... I, I heard a great example the other day of, of uh, issues around regulation, especially in the rural area. Yeah. Uh, there was a, an antenna company that was trying to deploy small cells, and the requirement was because all of the utilities are underground, all of the towers had to be underground. <laughs> How did that work out? Not, not very well. So, you know, as we start looking at, you know, the rural areas, that's, that's one of the biggest challenges, I think, that, that everybody has trying yeah. to deploy. It's not just the siting, it's all of the regulation that comes around, you know, aesthetics yeah. and all of those things that are just, you know, they become prohibitive. And I, and I have heard of two very large enterprise companies that were very, very interested in, in deploying their own 5G, a private 5G network for their large enterprise. And they literally backed away from it because when they looked at all of the bureaucracy and, and all of the hurdles that they had to jump through to be able to go do that, it, it just didn't make any sense anymore. Yeah, I didn't mean to take us on a sidetrack of all the other 5G issues. I know we're focused on supply chain today, but that, there's, those are issues that obviously are part of the conversation as well. Yeah, I think uh, obviously the spectrum, availability of spectrum is, is critical because it's only when you have capital and spectrum and innovation technologies that you can really uh, create something new. Um, I think in the, in the US uh, with what's happening, I, I cannot speculate what will end up with the T-Mobile Sprint merger, but you have a number of players along with AT&T and, and Verizon. So, what we see that even in TNT as a significant business in the enterprise. So what we see with uh, 5G is that the, 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 the demand, the, the pie is going to get much bigger where you're going to have a new model where enterprise will have their own network, whatever it's a you know, virtual uh, network, that's going to be a major sh new things happening which are going to create a new dimension even for existing operators and you are going to have probably new service providers. So the definition of, has been the telco may also evolve as we just, I just mentioned this example in, uh, in Japan where an e-commerce company is becoming an operator. So we see already in some other markets with this combination of spectrum and capital and technology, new service providers. And will it happen in the US or not? I think in the U.S. there is a lot of spectrum. There is capital with entrepreneur that knows there is some new technologies that may be available. So I think it's, it is going to create opportunities, as it is equally important for existing operators to understand how this innovation can improve their current way of doing business, and more importantly, to be in a more, much more competitive way for, for 5G. Uh, the last point I will make is that uh, it has always been a challenge in every country in the world how you provide connectivity and broadband to, you know, to the very remote location. So again, having this new technology which is more cloud-based, with more software-centric, you dramatically bring the cost down. 
which economically make it even now more affordable. So now that's again something which is going to be different and I think the government, the US government should embrace this innovation to accelerate the availability of broadband because that's part of equality. You want to have a society of equality, you need to provide connectivity to everyone. Let's see if there's questions in the audience now. I have still have a couple more, but do we have um, do we have microphones? Why don't we swing? Start with Toby here, and then we'll swing. Uh, deploy. Uh, uh, deploy left. Yeah. Thanks very much for, for the panel discussion oh, this morning. Could, could you? I know who you are, but could you oh, introduce sorry. yourself? Really? <laughs> All right. Yes. Yeah, sorry. I'm Toby Feakin. I'm ambassador for Cyber Affairs for Australia, one of those countries that's made some very distinct decisions around 5G networks. Um, won't go into the intricacies of those unless anyone's interested afterwards. I think the question I'd say, or, or rather the statement I'd say, is it's really heartening to hear that there's an amazing 5G industry here in the US. I work in the Asia Pacific. It's invisible. It's, not, it's just not there. And, and I'm in the middle of this discussion with so many different countries, and I don't see US industry in the middle of that too. And that worries me. So, so how does that change? And then one other question, if I may, which is then, how do you deliver cybersecurity in a mature 5G network? We've taken a decision <laughs> over that, but I'm interested in what your views are in terms of delivery of cybersecurity. Thank you. Those are good. <laughs> anyway, I, I can, Go ahead. I'll address the cybersecurity issue. Um, so, you know, we mentioned earlier the, the, the move towards cloud technologies, which actually introduces a lot of opportunity for automating security. Um, in our own cloud, we've been using something that we're calling autonomous security through the deployment of botnets, for example. Um, we're also at an advantage because we can use physical isolation, pull that cloud controller away from the compute that's being used for the network so that if somebody does attack the cloud controller, they can't reach the payload, they can't get to where all of the applications are running. Um, so there's some principles that can be applied there that work very, very well that, that make 5G a lot more secure than the, tra the traditional approach that we've taken in 3G and 4G of putting up firewall appliances and trying to do filtering and all of those types of things, which work, but in 5G, I think we have a lot better capabilities. And, and of course, you know, AI and, and machine learning help tremendously there as well. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put a plug in for Travis since you didn't mention it, but uh, he chaired an effort at the Federal Communications Commission called the, the, the CISRIC uh, Working Group. I think it was CISRIC 6, right? Was yeah. it 6? Yeah, CISRIC 6 last year. Um, CISRIC is the Communications Security, Reliability, and Interoperability Council, and they put out um, um, a whole document on 5G security. Um, there's been a lot of work at, at 3GPP, SA3, that's focused on security. Right. So um, there's actually security being built into the, into the 5G standards. So um, while the, the 5G network is a little different than previous generations, because you do have a more of a blurring of the core and the edge, which I know was an issue in some of the reporting that's come out of Australia. Um, I think the industry is very well aware of those issues and we're building in specifications and standards to deal with those issues and, and, and secure the network. And, and I think from my perspective, um, 5G will actually be a step forward in terms of security than what we've seen in previous generations because it's being built in from the ground up. Um, on the issue of, of, um, of why the conversation about U.S. suppliers and other entities hasn't occurred in other countries, I mean, I, I think this conversation today was really, I think Jim was kind of an attempt to start having that dialogue, to talk more about innovation in the space, and, and I think we need to have similar discussions like this around the world so people are aware of, of what's happening in the industry. I don't think these issues are well understood. I think a lot of the conversation has been kind of uh, unfortunately fixated on 
you know, uh, what to do about a particular entity as opposed to focused on how do we really create the right incentive structure for innovation. And I'm not saying that the decisions that were made either in Australia or other places were not the right decisions. It's just that um, the conversation's been kind of um, uh, focused in that particular area. And I think, I think if we can, I think we do need to broaden the conversation to talk more about these types of issues um, going forward and, and what is happening in the industry more broadly than just mm -hmm. the usual, you know, the vendors that we always talk about, right? Whether it's the four or five that are, that are major players. How do we expand that conversation and how do we take companies like Altio Star and others and, and make sure people are aware of what they're doing in a more broad way. I think that's, that's CSIS is trying to do that, but I think having this conversation, even potentially um, in other parts of the world, would be useful. So, my two cents for what it's worth. So, I just wanted to add a comment on the, this security and cybersecurity risk, which is real and probably going to remain a major area of concern. In fact, we are writing a white paper which is going to demonstrate that by moving to an open architecture, and this is very counterintuitive because open and secure usually don't go together. <laughs> so more it's open, it's more insecure. In fact, having an open architecture with a software layer, so it, now you can create a single pane of glass, which is much more transparent. So open means first it's transparent. And this is giving much more control to the operators because the operators now can go into any element. There's no proprietary domain, which is locked up, they can absolutely have a much better management through their network elements with an open architecture. So that's something that we are very uh, focused on because this is a very important dimension because as we are going to have more distribution of these network endpoints and network elements with the edge, it's absolutely it's a responsibility that we cannot just throw innovation in the field and say, Let's see what happens. You know, uh, people will definitely try to, to hack and they will try to penetrate and to have access to information that they are not supposed to, uh, to have access to. So this is top of mind for us and uh, we strongly believe that only by moving to this open architecture and the standard uh, interfaces, uh, we will have uh, much better control of this end-to-end -end because it has to be end-to-end -end. and not just as it has been today, it's point products. For every element, you need to have a specific solution. And that's uh, an issue because it's not secure and it's not scalable. Next question. While we're waiting for the microphone to show up, let me, American companies might be there and you might not see them. So when you think about Qualcomm, Xilinx, Intel, you can't make this stuff without them. And then as I think as we move to this more software-defined environment, you'll see places like India and some of the European countries and China too but mainly the U.S. driving a lot of the innovation and software. So it may not be as visible. It's not the traditional suppliers who are going around doing the marketing, but the fact that you can't see them doesn't mean they aren't there, I would say. Uh, next question. Hi, David Winks with AccuSight. As we move toward uh, software-defined networks, a lot of the code development, as uh, earlier mentioned, can come from all over the world. How do you provide that software supply chain assurance to make sure that uh, in those code modules that there aren't uh, malicious uh, 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 software or backdoors uh, that are introduced by, by uh, adversarial nations that make their way into the, these open standards. Yeah, so that, that gets to be a difficult question. Um, when we say, you know, secure, nothing is 100% secure. 
And as they found out in the UK where they've been testing software for 10 years, um, you can look all day long and you may not see something until it calls home. And we've seen examples of this. There was a, a, a vulnerability report, a CVE, that came out, I think, earlier this year where open source software, which gets lots of eyes looking at it, lots of code reviews, uh, still had malware embedded into the code that made it into multiple products and was not detected despite all of that testing until after it was deployed, the malware was activated, and it started calling home. We're always going to be dealing with that type of an issue, and that's why when we start talking about supply chain, you have to look at things like what is the origin, um, and, and look at the prog proposals. I, I think that's probably the most realistic approach to how we address the supply chain issue. And I know there's also work going on at uh, DHS and CISA on the supply chain task force. And I think you're gonna see a lot of similarities in their findings and their, uh, their recommendations as what you saw at the prog proposals. Yeah, there's, there's also um, activity at NTIA where they're working on the software bill of materials mm -hmm. or the SBOM project where they're trying to uh, make sure that when um, entities are providing software that they're providing uh, a bill of materials almost like a set of ingredients of you know, what are the code libraries that are being built into those so that if there is a particular vulnerability discovered in a code library that you will know what your exposure is. And then that gets tricky because on the you know, on an enterprise business side like an AT&T side, we have to then ingest all that information and be able to you know, look at where we have exposure to that particular code, that's not as easier said than done for a large enterprise like ours, but there's, there's efforts in our chief security office and parts of our company to be able to do that type of thing. So um, those are the types of developments that I think can help with that. Um, it's not really, I don't know it's necessarily unique to any, you know, I, think, I think the trended industry is clearly to go towards open source and you know, using these, these uh, reusing these libraries. So I think it's something that's gonna be more and more necessary as time goes by, but um, it's a broader issue than just telecom, right? It's really for anybody that's using IT infrastructure. So we're gonna have uh, an event on uh, supply chain security that Cleet Johnson is organizing, probably at the end of the month with DHS and some of the other agencies. And I should note Harvey Rishikoff here in the front who's been working on the DOD effort, uh, Deliver Uncompromised, to think about how you uh, get software to a better place. Mm. So there's a lot of work going on there. We had a question over here. Yes, uh, fantastic panel. My name's John Bird with Miller Wenhold Capital Strategies and John Pelletiel and Associates. And uh, going back to the discussion on physical presence and the siting issues uh, for broadband deployment, uh, one of the newer agencies to this uh, opportunity is USGS. They have a program and it's a 3D elevation program, which is a nationwide LIDAR program for enhanced elevation data nationwide. And they signed an agreement with the private provider back in February to actually uh, crowdsource and crowdsource this data for the siting opportunities. Mm -hmm. uh, so to the FCCs, to the NTIAs, to the RUSs, and to the USGSs of the world, what kind of advice and counsel would you have for this kind of opportunity? Yeah, Rand is outside my, uh, I left radio 30 years ago. <laughs> he's, gonna on, he's gonna put me on the spot. I'm not familiar with that particular effort, so I'd have to, I honestly would have to look at it and see like, where it would fit. But I mean, clearly there's a lot of activity going on. You know, uh, the FCC put out, um, made it, uh, I forget the exact time frame, but in the last year they've done a uh, rulemaking on how to expedite some of that cell siting issues and permitting mm -hmm. process. So um, it'd be interesting to, to take a look at that and see, but I can't, I can't comment specifically on it. Well, the other thing I mentioned that even if, <laughs> 
Well, I'm based in California. I start to have more trips to Washington, D.C. because... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, which is good. Uh, uh, and, and the reason being that, you know, when you, you don't know what you don't know. So, again, I think part of the issue we, we have today with this concept of 5G and where is the U.S. industry and is because many people don't know, you know, what, what has been going on. And, like, you know, there have been investment for years. Okay, it's more, more kind of incubation. So now it's, it's available and it's, it's uh, stable, it's reliable, it's you know, prime for deployment. So I think this creates the opportunity for you know, policymakers and new agencies to take uh, opportunity. So that we want to establish this communication uh, channel, which has to happen first. So at least you know and you can make your own uh, judgment about is it, you know, is it real and then does it give us what we need. So that's at least for us, besides developing the technology, is a responsibility to communicate, you know, what now is possible. Because, yeah, it's very different. It's, it's very disruptive. It's a new way of doing things. So we cannot expect the people to just know this up front. So that's where, with a couple of us and the ecosystem uh, that we have, are trying to explain in more detail what it is and why it is now the time uh, to uh, really uh, take advantage of it. Uh, other questions? Uh, well, we got a bunch. Um, well, how about that one right in the back there, and then we'll go up to the front. I think we got time for three more. Hi, I was a cybersecurity TMT consultant with um, a few different MNOs and MSOs, and I'm now conducting research at Harvard Kennedy's Belfer Center. Uh, my question is not on cybersecurity, although I appreciate your previous answers. Um, but you touched on government's role in policies around vendor diversity and interoperability. I was wondering if you could expand on what you think government's role is in um, development, like the long-standing precedent with uh, AT&T's Bell Labs and collaboration with government, um, and then also protectionism, whether that's through uh, CFIUS or other vehicles um, from a kind of national security perspective. I, I definitely think there's a role for government in R&D funding and supporting kind of developments in industry. I mean, there's traditionally industries had partnerships with um, a variety of parts of the guy. I'll give you an example, um, um, just to speak to some things AT&T's been doing. You know, we have partnerships with several of the national laboratories on a variety of different technologies that we just did an event a few weeks ago where we talked about um, some research that we're doing on quantum communications with Fermi National Lab in Chicago. So there's clearly a role for government in kind of working with industry on R&D, um, helping provide um, some level of um, R&D funding support and other incentives mm -hmm. for um, developments in the space. I think that's an area that's traditionally occurred in, in our industry and I think it will continue you. There's also the, as I mentioned earlier, there's the procurement side of things. You know, DOD and other agencies have, you know, massive budgets. They're looking at how to roll out 5G in their markets, and they have a they have the ability to also um, partner with industry to help drive some of these uh, these solutions as well. So between R&D funding and kind of the overall kind of government procurement process and kind of the funds that are going to go into 5G and government agencies, they, the government can be a leader in helping drive um, some of these solutions through both procurement and R&D. So there's clearly a role for partnering between industry and government. It's not going to be like maybe we see in other parts of the world where it's more top-down driven. I think the U.S., the way our economy is structured, it's more bottoms-up or it's more um, distributed and diversified. But, um, I think, but I think government can certainly partner with industry through R&D and through procurement and other means to do that and kind, of move, and kind of move us in the right direction. And hopefully European countries will do something similar and that will create the kind of um, you know, the grassroots momentum towards um, this more open and diversified architecture over time. There's a really good example um, of how government can help promote uh, innovation in, in 5G and, and beyond 5G. 
Uh, the National Science Foundation has something that they call the Platform for Advanced Wireless Research. And uh, it's, it's funding out towards the research community to go beyond the standards to develop you know, what's next after the standards. Some of the criteria in any of the researchers, which are universities, that want to get that grant money have to partner with the municipalities. So there you have a partnership between uh, educational institutions doing the research, partnering with their local municipalities to go actually deploy uh, a test bed, if you will, uh, for future research on wireless. And, and uh, it's, I think it started two years ago. Um, there's two, I think, two test beds defined. Um, so I think that serves as a pretty good model of how government can help promote this. Yeah, especially on the deployment side, yeah. right? Because, because I mean, um, I think having some of these, I was speaking more on the federal level, but I think you're right, at the state and local level, there's certainly opportunities for like smart cities, for example. I mean, right. there, there's cities that, could, that can help expedite a smart cities deployment that will speed up some of the 5G rollout in those areas. So there's clearly things that at the state and local level can also be done to, to, help, to help move things forward in a more expeditious way. We had two questions on this side. Maybe we can get them both. So one up front, one in the back there. Thank you very much. My name is Roger Gentil. I'm, uh, I work with a capital firm that works in, in Africa. We invest in Africa in telecom. Oh. And uh, Thierry, you, you, you're, you're, I'm, I'm amazed by what you said. Uh, listening to you is just like picturing a transformation, a revolution in telecom space in Africa. And uh, we just bought uh, an operator that is totally bankrupt in a way. And the reason why we did that is exactly to do what you're trying to say. But also listening to you, and we, we are confident that we are going to actually deploy some, some great network. We're working on it, and perhaps uh, we'll research your firm to understand that better. But my question is, when you go into business and invest, one rule is to be the first mover advantage, get some, you know, have a competitive edge. But from what you're saying, we can go to Malawi, spend all this money to develop a new network, and somebody else is going to come behind us, do exactly what you do, and kill us, right? So how do we do that? How well, do we compete that? I mean, it is just, it is great what you said, but at the same time, it's scary. Yeah, so I mean, the, yes, that's part of the disruption. So I appreciate, you know, I will definitely see uh, great opportunities to, for new, uh, you know, regions of the world to leapfrog and to be able to adopt uh, and to be you know, connected. I mean, there are many examples how in Africa or India, in fact, they've been now leading. I mean, if you take India, there is more data on the network than any other part of the world. So I think the opportunity is going to be there. It, I think the differentiation, so what, what you want is first, you have to have a model that works for, with, for the economics. The economics of, as we say, going to 5G, you need a new cost structure. But the differentiation is going to be with what, if it, you, know, you really use it as a platform, you will compete in your market, not just because you have the cheapest uh, uh, network, but because you are able to you know, provide and create services much faster in a better way. So at the end of the day, it has to benefit the end user, whoever, whatever it's a consumer or an enterprise. So we want to make sure that people are, especially the operators, are not focusing so much on procurement, which they do a lot, but more on the service creation. So by trying to have this model which is more open market and more uh, flexible, then you are able to focus and invest 
in other part of your network. So that's, that's the way we look at it and, and that's what will make the, the business uh, healthier and probably uh, secure, you know, protect your investment. So, but we'll be happy to, to talk more about that. And our Africa program probably in the fall is going to have a pro, uh, event on infrastructure and network investment in Africa. So I hope we can rope you into that. We had a question in the back there. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Mark Manier with the South China Morning Post. First of all, thank you very much for the panel. It's uh, great to kind of get a good broad perspective. I was wondering if we could maybe pull it back with a couple of the things you said. I think, Chris, you mentioned that it's probably not realistic to think that you can exclude one particular player who's name starts with H from uh, all markets around the world. And uh, you were also saying, some of the rest of the panel was saying that the security elements are actually better than some of the uh, misconceptions would lead us to believe, given that you're starting from ground zero and you can actually use some of the new technologies. So maybe you can give us a picture of where you might see this all going. Do you, for instance, see Huawei being reasonably strong in markets like Africa and Latin America, uh, somewhat in the middle in, uh, in Europe with certain safeguards with allies that are more sensitive, uh, politically maybe very little in the US. Maybe you could put that picture together for us. Thank you. And I should note before we answer the question that uh, I'm really happy because we had an event on 5G and only used the H word twice. So, <laughs> yeah. We'll come back to that though. Chris, do you want to start? Terry, do you want to start? Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to just, uh, I can start with just, just by saying if you look at the data that's been out, that's been presented to me anyway, um, the trajectory that we're on is that there are um, certain suppliers that are going to have, that, that you know, I think, the H company, right, we'll, we'll call them that. Uh, they, they have now surpassed, they are now the leading provider of RAN equipment, uh, networking equipment in the world. They've just recently passed, I think, Ericsson in the last year or so in that space. Mm -hmm. And so the trajectory that we're on is that, um, you know, if you combine the, the different entities, um, those countries' firms are going to continue to grow and, and um, the concern on our industry side is that in three or four years, if that trajectory continues, it's going to crowd out alternative options. And you can debate whether, you can debate the security issues, I'm not gonna get into the into that side of it, but um, but you know if you if you presume that there is a security concern, which I think the general consensus I've heard is that you know you really can't have um, fundamentally untrusted equipment in what is an otherwise trusted network. That's just not possible. And so if that's the assumption that you're making, then um, there's a concern that your you know companies like mine and others will be left with you know, the remaining vendors that are outside of that space. And so we have to ensure that over time that we have plenty of options in the supply chain that we're not locked in with only a couple vendors who are competing with what some would argue is a state subsidized entity that is continuing to grow its market share that will crowd out investment and, and capabilities. And I'll give you one data point. If you look at R&D spend, um, I think that particular firm has doubled the spend in R&D that the other suppliers have been, put, been able to put in place over the last year. Um, I, I forget where that, I got that data point from some research that we've done, but it's been the general discussions that we've had. And, um, and so if that's the trajectory that they're on, that they're spending 2X in R&D, uh, where are we going to be in three and four years? Notwithstanding any of the security concerns. I, my personal opinion is that, as I said, you can't have untrusted equipment and trusted networks. I think the security concerns are, are, are there, but even without that, there is an issue of the trajectory of the supply chain and where do we end up? And that, that is the primary concern that we need to deal with. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think the biggest security concern that we have is just what Chris mentioned. As we, you know, 
as we go down the path, you know, four or five years on, on this trajectory we're on today, what happens when we have one supplier? And that's the direction we're going today. Um, if you think, you know, when I started in this business some 30 years ago, we had dozens of suppliers in, in, the, in this space, and they've dwindled for a number of different reasons. Usually, you know, profitability is the biggest issue. Um, we can't afford to continue down that path. We don't want to get to a position where there's only one choice, because then everybody loses globally if we get to that position. That, to me, is the largest security concern that we have today. That's right. That's right. Yeah, so <clears throat> I, will, I will finish with what I started with. The best way to compete in any market, in any industry, is with innovation. You have to innovation faster. And definitely our benchmark is not today to disrupt Nokia and Ericsson. We believe that what we are doing is going to disrupt the number one player in this market, which to some extent has already a very strong and dominant position. So uh, beside the fact that okay, we should operate in a, as much as possible in a fair trade environment, the best way for the US to compete here and outside is to have faster, better innovation. And this is what the mindset that we need to create and the right policies so we can accelerate this innovation. That's a way we are going to win and more importantly, bringing and giving more choices for the people who are going to decide to procure, to buy, to invest in this technology for their business. So that's what we want and we strongly believe that only an open market, an open ecosystem can provide at scale those benefits. So innovation with open uh, market give you the scale. And that's what I think is the way we're going to change uh, the economics and the status quo that we have. And then, you know, at the end of the fair game, you know, the best will win. So this is kind of like the movie we saw, the story of uh, the internet and of computing. And so there's some lessons we can draw from that. And one of them would be proprietary technology, proprietary and innovation are antithetical. Uh, another lesson would be that monopoly and innovation are antithetical. So you want to avoid proprietary lock-in, you want to avoid monopoly. Um, the goal here is to say that technological change, if we do it right, the move to software-defined networks will allow us to preserve diversity, uh, to avoid monopoly and a reliance on proprietary and uh, maybe to make it more secure. So I don't know if anyone has any final thoughts. If not, we can wrap it up. Final, no? Well, yes, no, maybe. <laughs> I mean, exciting time. I appreciate you hosting it. Yeah, this is a good time to be <laughs> in this market. So timing so, is right, yeah. so it's yeah. a question of timing. Like I said, you know, when I started in this business 30 plus years ago, and we started uh, this discussion around data and, and voice convergence, and, and we kept trying and trying, and we came up with a lot of different iterations 5G finally, finally represents that true convergence of data and voice. And, you know, I had visions of retiring uh, until I saw 5G. I think I've got another 10 years to go. I don't know. We'll <laughs> Probably. See. Probably. Probably. I mean, I think the key takeaway here is that there are, uh, there are, there are developments happening in the industry that um, I think are positive towards bringing additional options into the supply chain. I think I think one of the things that the conversation to date is, is not has not really 
focused in that area, and, and I think what I'm hoping what Jim, you're trying to bring to light, and others are trying to bring to light, is that there are other developments that are occurring that um, are positive developments in that space. I mean, to your, to your question earlier, I think you know it's it's uh, it's not that well understood. I think these these concepts around ORAN and ONAP, and they're they're fairly technically uh, they're they're challenging issues. I mean, they're not the easiest thing in the world to get your head around, but I think the uh, I think the uh, they are positive developments and there are opportunities there. But we need the policy community to. Uh, make sure they put in place the right framework so that these companies and these new developments can thrive. And it's, it's really important, I can't stress enough, that we've got to make those decisions. The decisions that we're making today um, around these deployments and, and procurements are going to affect um, where the industry is in five years. And so that, to me, is the, is the key takeaway, that there are options that are being looked at, but we've got to, rate the, we've got to put in, the, in place the right framework today to make that a, a reality in, in three to five years from now. I don't think there's no reason to be uh, depressed <laughs> about the, <laughs> the topic of 5G. I think I hope you understand there is new, uh, new choices, new opportunities. They are very, pretty dramatic in terms of how things can be done differently. So it's not, again, to duplicate and replicate what has been done so far. And this is opportunity for the U.S. ecosystem. You were mentioning about the R&D of uh, this particular company in Asia. If I look at all the companies who are participating in this open ecosystem for mobile network, we have a multiplier of 10x or 20x. So we have already R&D scale if we are applying this best of breed open ecosystem. That's, that's another way we can uh, look at it. So we always try and end on a happy note, and I think that counts as a happy note. Please <laughs> join me in thanking the, pa thanking the panel. Thank you.